Continuing our study here through the book of Romans. We just started Romans last week. We had some sheets we handed out last week. There are still some copies on the back table. But you're not going to need your sheets this morning. Because like I told you last week when we started Romans, I don't know exactly how this is going to go. So I was really proud of ourselves. We did 15 verses last week, which is good for us. So we're going to slow it down and just do verse 16 today. So, and I'm not kidding. Um, Because verse 16 is that good. Look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And if you weren't with us last week, we talked about how one of the intended purposes for us is to go tell people about Jesus, the gospel, the good news. And we talked about how Jesus in Matthew 28, that's what he told us to do, the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. That's what we're supposed to be doing is teaching people and and spreading the truth of who Christ is. And then Jesus, right before he ascended in Acts 1, he said, I've given you power. Now go tell people about me. That's our marching orders that the Lord has given us. So that's why Romans 1.16 is so important. It's because we should not be ashamed of this mission, of this job that Christ has given us. Now, what do we do with this? Now, I'm going to give you two other messages just to kind of write down if you want, because we laid some foundation for this. First one is back on November 2nd of last year, November 2nd of 2014. We did a message in Acts called, Are You Saved?, And then we did a message last year, March 16th of 2014, March 16th, called The 21st Century Church is Broken. I don't like to say, hey, go back and re-listen, but hey, go back and re-listen. Because we laid some groundwork with that. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But the idea of this gospel, the idea of this message of Christ, how it can really change a person. As you change a person, it changes a family. As it changes a family, it can then change a household It just spreads. That's what it's supposed to do. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody, and as you walked away from that conversation, you thought, I possibly just changed through the Lord a person, a household, a family, etc. And you wonder what the trickle-down effect's going to be. I had a conversation like that this week. We were in Napoleon, and I had the family with me. We just got done doing a hospital visit, and we were hungry, so we ran into town to grab a quick bite. And I decided I wanted Chinese food. So I went to one of the Chinese restaurants there. And the point, and as you walk in, I get the box. You fill the box up to go, which is kind of an interesting thing that you fill this box up and they charge you by the pound of food. So you get this box, and I go and I fill it up and I take it to the lady and she gets ready to weigh it. And so, and I don't mean this at all disrespectfully, please don't take it that way. There's a bit of a language barrier between her and I. And so she's weighing the box. I see she's got this big container of cookie dough. And she was making chocolate chip cookies. So she has this huge container of cookie dough. And I said, oh, making cookies. How's that for an astute observation? The way way I try to witness is I just start talking. (laughs) Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. The Lord opens the door. So I said, making cookies. She goes, yeah, making cookies. Like I said, a bit of of a language barrier there. But she basically said this is her second attempt making chocolate chip cookies. The first time she made them, she didn't make it right. They burned, et cetera. So she's got this big thing of chocolate chip cookie dough. So I said, you know what you should do? I said, don't bake them. I said, just eat the dough. <laughs> she gave me the strangest look. I said, seriously, before you put them in the oven, I said, just take one spoonful of dough. Just take a spoonful. Eat the dough. I said, it will change your life. <laughs> you thought I was going to tell you a story about the gospel. No. I just changed one woman with cookie dough. She's going to change her family. 
She's going to take it back to her home country, and all of a sudden, cookie dough is going to take off. That's the power that you can have with one conversation. Now let's try to make it spiritual. Now, you can do that with the gospel. Because here's the word. Look at verse 16. It is the power of God to salvation. It's a power. That word power is that word dunamos in the Greek, which we get our English word dynamic or dynamite. It's an explosive power. It's not just this something that maybe has an effect on somebody. No, when you present the gospel, you are planting a piece of spiritual dynamite in their life saying, this is what the Holy Spirit can do for you. It's life-changing. It's life-altering. We should not be ashamed of it. Now, I would say most of us being here this morning, we're not ashamed of the gospel. You are publicly coming to church. You're publicly listening to the message. I don't think you're ashamed of the gospel. Most of the time when we get ashamed of the gospel is when we're that one believer, that one speck of light in a dark workplace, or that one speck of light in a dark household or in a dark classroom. All of a sudden, it's not that we're ashamed, but this really isn't just a good time, Lord. Wait a second. We have a piece of spiritual dynamite that can change the world. What are we going to do with that? What does that mean for us? So what I want to do is I want to build on this. Because the reason I want to build on this, and that one first message I referred you back to, that November 2nd one of Are You Saved, really just raised, lays the groundwork of what does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? What does it mean to really know the gospel personally? That other one, back in March 16th, the 21st century church is broken. We were going through the book of Acts at the time. The way we do church doesn't work anymore. The church has morphed into something that is not really in line with what the scriptures are, and you've heard me mention this before. And this is something the Lord's been working on my heart, well, at least since March of last year. It's almost been a year the Lord's been working on this, and he keeps fine-tuning it to the point of almost to today. Richard and I have been talking so much out here lately of, this doesn't work anymore. The way we do church doesn't work, because the way we do church does not line up with the Bible. The way we do church here in America is you show up on Sunday... And you have a pastor or some other people that have a title, and they present to you a teaching, and then go home, then come back next Sunday and let's repeat it. And then during the week, the understanding is those people that have titles are taking care of everything spiritually that's supposed to be going on at church. That's not the way the church is supposed to be. The Bible makes it clear that every member of the body of Christ is a minister. And you've heard me say this many times. The word minister means to serve. So all of us are called to serve in a capacity. And I don't mean necessarily serve a church. It's just serving the Lord throughout the week. And this is what we need to really understand the purpose of church because it's my job as the pastor to equip you to go out and make changes throughout the week. And then we're supposed to get back together next Sunday and encourage each other once more and equip you some more. And then you go do it again. And then if you need encouragement or fellowship or strength during the week, we have these prayer groups and small group studies for you and Bible studies. Get involved with those, and that can be a little oasis for you. But for a lot of times with church, and it was this way for me before you know, I was out here as the pastor, a lot of times you showed up Sunday. Oh, that was nice. Kind of get just through the week. Oh, Sunday, that was nice. I don't want that anymore. I want things to be different. I want us to really look at these passages and see what it means. So let's talk about this. Let's go to Matthew 13 now. I'm going to have you go to two references at once. Matthew 13 and 1 Timothy 4. Matthew 13, 1 Timothy 4. I want to compare and contrast here a couple passages. We're using Romans 1.16 as our springboard. We're not ashamed of the gospel. What does that mean to get out there and not be ashamed of the gospel? Matthew 13, 
1 Timothy 4, please. Matthew 13 is a very famous parable of the sower and the seeds. We've talked about this parable a lot. So we're going to hit this real quickly. There's one aspect of this parable that I want to use as our next stepping stone. Matthew 13 and 1 Timothy 4. Matthew 13, let's go ahead and start in verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell in stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He was ears to hear, let him hear. That's the parable. Let the Bible be its own commentary. Verse 18. Same chapter, therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. This is where you get a chance to share with somebody and they, and they just don't care. I mean, there's no other way to say it. They just don't care. The seed is completely snatched away. You're talking to four or five guys at work. You explain to them the gospel. And, yeah, that's great. Thanks. Goodbye. It's gone. Next one, verse 20, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. This is the person that shows up and they hear the truth of what Christianity could do for their life and it just completely mesmerizes them. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I need. I'm going to go out and get a Bible. I'm going to show up at every Bible study. And that happens for about three weeks. And then they disappear. And then you talk to them, it's like, hey, miss you. Oh, I know. Don't worry, pastor. I'm going to be back. No, you sprang up so quick. There's no root. They never really grasp the concept of what it means to be a born-again believer, rooted and grounded in Christ, like Colossians says. So what happens is they spring up quickly. There's no root. Life gets tough. And they just kind of faint. They just kind of falter. We talked about that on Wednesday night. We talked about that term, crisis of faith. It's a theological term that people use, meaning as a believer, you don't know how strong your faith is until you go through a crisis of faith. When you go through a difficult time where God did something you didn't expect, somebody made a choice you didn't like, all of a sudden the health isn't there, all of a sudden the marriage isn't as strong, all of a sudden family relationships aren't as good, you have a crisis of faith. Now what are you going to do? You either falter and faint, and your faith just disappears, or you rise to the occasion, and you stop and you say, Lord, in this difficult time, I will trust you, cling to you, and never let go. That's that crisis of faith. Well, what happened with this group here in verses 20 through 21, when the tough times hit, they had no root, and they faltered. They needed that root. Verse 22 is what I really want to focus on. Now, he who receives seed among the thorns... Is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who has received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Verse 23 is our goal, people, is that we want to get there, produce fruit, hundredfold, sixty, thirty. That's our goal. The reality is a lot of us are in verse 22. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, we hear it, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. We hear it, we know it, we believe it, but we don't live it as good as we should. Now, it's not that we're out there doing morally wrong things. No, we're, we're morally strong. 
It's not that we're spiritually giving up on God. No, we've been choked out by life. We've been just choked out by the things of the world. We focus more on our earthly job than our heavenly ministry. We focus more on our earthly house instead of building up our spiritual house. We focus more on our physical health than we do our spiritual health. None of those things are necessarily wrong. But what happens is we're so focused on things that aren't spiritual, we are now choked out and we're not as strong as we should be in the Lord. But the problem is we look good, we sound good, because we're not doing bad things. We still know the Lord. The Lord knows me. But we're not where we should be, could be. Let's build on this. Can you go to 1 Timothy 4? 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Did you hear that? Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. I believe we're living in the latter times. People are departing from the faith. Do you realize that? You know what the problem is? They don't know they're departing from the faith. They think they're still okay. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That phrase, seared with a hot iron, in the Greek is where we get our English word cauterize, like you cauterize a wound. You literally take something hot and you sear it, you close it up. What this passage is saying, that in the end times, people who know the truth, their conscience is going to become seared, shut to the things of God. So when the Lord wants to speak to their heart through the Spirit and speak to their heart through their conscience, they've seated it. They've closed it up. Now, once again, these people are probably moral, doing decent things. They don't even realize that they're becoming choked out by life. They don't realize that their conscience is becoming seared. One more point on this, please. Go to 2 Timothy 3. One book to the right. 2 Timothy 3. See what Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3. Let's talk about the end times again. Verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Listen to this description of the world and tell me if this lines up with what you see on the news. Men will become lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5 is the key. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. That is us. A form of godliness. We believe in God. We carry our Bibles. We don't do things that are really wrong. There's a form of godliness. But the power behind that godliness has dissipated. We don't even realize it, though, sometimes. One more verse, and I'm going to make some points here. Go to Revelation 2, and then we'll take a quick break. Revelation 2. How can we not realize this? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, seriously, Lord, would I not know that I'm being choked out? Matthew 13. Would I not know that my conscience has become seared to you? Would I not know that I have a form of godliness and denying its power? I mean, would I not see this? Would I not realize this? No. You know why? Revelation 2. This is one of the letters that Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus. Verse 2 of Revelation 2. I know your works. 
your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. The reason we don't realize it is because of verses 2 and 3. We're so busy serving God, we forgot why we're serving God. Somebody came up to me after the 830 service and said it's the whole Martha mentality. You're so busy serving and doing things, you don't realize that this relationship, this relationship with Christ is not where it should be. It's like the marriage that's been married for a few years and it's like, hey, do you try to make time for your spouse? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we do grocery shopping together and, uh, you know, the other day um, I was working on the lawnmower and I needed her to hold the flashlight. I don't know what I'd do without her. No, it's not a relationship. That's teamwork at its best. That's roommates that help each other. See, and what happens with Jesus? Oh, do you love Jesus? Oh, I love Jesus. How do I know you love Jesus? Because verse 2, look at my labor, my patience, my works. Look at my week, Lord. How do I know I love you? Because I did hospital visits this week. I prepared messages this week. People called me and I prayed with them. Look at my works, Lord. I am showing you. I am focused on you. I am not doing immoral things. I am doing moral things. I'm even trying to find time for the Bible here and there. I'm even trying to do this. And I'll do my one Sunday a month at church. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You left your first love. That's, that, that hit me. I'm so busy serving God, serving my wife, serving my family, spiritually leading my boys, trying to spiritually lead Dawn, trying to spiritually lead a church that is so easy for me to leave my first love. And this is what happens to the body of Christ. We get choked out and thinking we're okay when we're really not okay. And we have to be honest about this. Let's go back to the beginning. Romans 1.16, we're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It's a power. Then we went to Matthew 13. We talked about the parable of the sower and the seeds and what happens. There is one seed that produces fruit, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Then there's another seed that gets choked. Why do they get choked? Their conscience has been seared, shut. So therefore, it's hard for them to be of the Lord and hearing the Lord because it's seared shut. They have a form of godliness, 2 Timothy 3, but they deny its power. Then in Revelation, we're so busy doing God things that we lost why we do God things. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, this is where it's our job, our responsibility as a church to step in and say, let's get back to the basics. Can you go with me to Ephesians 4? What's the purpose of the church? Think about that. Now, some of you are going to disagree with me, and that's fine. But if I come to you and say, what's the purpose of the church, what we're doing here right now? Some people would say the purpose of the church is to spread the gospel. Do you realize who mostly comes to church on Sunday? Christians. It's your job to spread the gospel throughout the way. Well, the purpose of the church, then, is to do what? Well, it says right here, Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he himself... Verse 11, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Okay, that's me. I'm the pastor teacher. So what am I supposed to do, Lord? Tell me. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. My job is to equip you to get out there and do stuff throughout the week. This is a staff meeting. 
where we get together and we say, how can we help you? What tools do you need to further work the ministry where you're at? How can we equip you? Now, there are moments where we will make sure, I shouldn't say there are moments, but we will make sure the gospel is presented because non-believers do come and we want to make sure that's presented. But the primary purpose of the church, and this is where it blows our mind because we don't think like this. We've got to get back to what the Bible says. The primary purpose of the church is to equip you to go out and then tell people about Christ. You're going to run into more non-believers at Walmart than you are here. You're going to run into more non-believers this five days you have at work or six days you have at work than you will here. That doesn't mean there's not nine believers here in this service. There are, I'm sure. But what we're doing is presenting the gospel, which we will do, but we're also presenting the tools to help you. Verse 12, we're supposed to equip you to get out there and work and build up the body of Christ. And then when you need a refresher... You hit one of those midweek Bible studies or prayer groups or services. You come back next Sunday saying, staff meeting, okay, what can I learn here, Lord, to go out and then never be an effective witness? Why don't we think that way? Because most of the time we're more focused on our earthly job than our heavenly ministry, our earthly house and not our spiritual house, and our physical health and not our spiritual health. We're more focused on just life. And that's why the parable of the sower and the seed talks about how we can get choked out by life. Our conscience can be seared. We can have a form of godliness but deny its power. We can be like the church in Revelation, so busy serving God. Why are we serving Him? I was reading this. This is one of my devotionals I like to read. It's called My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. Some of you may have read this. He had a quote back on December 27th. I just want to read this. And some of you may have got this. I'd like to send out a, a monthly spiritual focus to some of the servants and staff out here. And this is what we sent out this week. Not often, but every once in a while, God brings us to a major turning point, a great crossroads in our life. From that point, we either go towards a more and more slow, lazy, and useless Christian life, or we become more and more on fire, giving our utmost for His highest, our best for His glory. There's a crossroad. And that crossroad, you have to decide what you're going to do. What's my focus? The Lord or not the Lord? And just be careful. Really ask yourself, Am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Now, this is where it gets tough, right? Because what am I supposed to be doing, right? What, what am I supposed to be doing? What is my vision? What is my ministry? You know, Proverbs says this, where there's no vision, the people perish. If I came up to you men, men that have family at home, wife, if I came up to you men and said, as the spiritual leaders of your house, what is the vision for your family in 2015? Could you answer that question? And maybe you don't have family, maybe wives or women or men, or just if you're a single individual, if I came up to you and said, what is the vision for you for 2015? And I'm setting you up, because if you say, I don't, I don't know. Proverbs says, my people perish for lack of vision. Unless you know what God's asking you to do, you're just going to go through life and get choked out. And you're going to feel okay because you have a form of godliness, but you're denying its power. You're going to feel okay because you're doing Revelation 2. You're doing works. You got the Martha thing, but you don't got the Mary thing of just sitting at the feet of Jesus. We really got to stop and ask ourselves that. Why don't we do it? I think we're afraid of screwing it up. I think we're afraid sometimes of messing up. Maybe we're afraid of doing it wrong. I don't know. But here's the beautiful thing about doing it wrong. God still loves us. I'm going to share this with you. So this... 
Bottled water. I have a point for this. I brought this in. A few months ago, we went to see a movie. I took the older four boys. And our oldest boy, Elias, who's nine years old, likes responsibility and he likes trying to do some new things. So as we got there to go to the movie, they wanted to get some candy for the movie. So we had to wait in line to get the candy. But as you know with kids, you got to make sure they go to the bathroom before the movie. So, guys, can't do both. So we waited in line for a while. The movie's getting ready to start. I said, boys, we can't. Elias says, Dad, why don't you let me wait in line? I'll get the food. And you can take the other guys to the bathroom. So I said, sure. So I took the other three, took them. Elias waited in line. And I told Elias before I left, I said, this is what you're going to do. I said, you can pick up two things of candy so that way we can share. And I said, you're going to ask for a cup of water. I said, because they offer cups of water. So just get a cup and just get a cup for water. Okay? So he explained it. He completely got it. Come out of the bathroom. Elias is standing there. He just got done paying. He has the biggest smile on his face. Two boxes of candy and this. Now... This, this is not a cup of water. This cost about $22, I think, if I remember remember correctly. This water is so valuable that I'm saving it for my 25th anniversary with Dawn. We are going to pour drinks and toast. If I remember correctly, and I'm not exaggerating, I I really do believe this costs $4.50. I think it costs, some of you are like, yeah, that's not a bad deal. Um, Now, I came out, and I had a brief moment. I could have said, buddy, what are you doing? Cup of water, a cup, a glass. I showed you, I pointed it to you. He was so proud of himself. He was so happy. He was so everything. You know what I did? Pat him on the shoulder and just said, good job. Now, same thing happens with us. The Lord says, James, I'm going to let you be a pastor at church. And I'm going to screw things up. And certain times I'm going to come to the Lord so happy and say, Lord, look what I did. And he's just going to pat me on the back and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I've come to the conclusion that when I do projects at home, I could do them quicker, easier, more effectively if my boys never helped me. But I miss out on the ministry part of it. God could do a much better job presenting the gospel if he would just get us out of the way. In the book of Revelation, he's going to raise up the 144,000 Jews to spread the gospel. He's going to send out the two witnesses. And the Bible says he's going to have angels flying overhead. That's pretty effective. But during this age, this church age, where we're on this earth, he says, I want to use you. Now, what are you going to do with that? See, Nehemiah, when God called out, excuse me, when God called out to Isaiah and said, who am I going to send? Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Send me. Now, this is where we get to our final thing. Nehemiah chapter 2, please. How do you figure out what the vision that God has in store for you? Well, let's see what Nehemiah has to say. Nehemiah chapter 2. Background to Nehemiah. Nehemiah feels led by the Lord to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. The walls, obviously, during Nehemiah's time are vital for protection and safety, but they also carry a deeper symbolic meaning. The walls being rebuilt means that the town is back to where it's supposed to be. It's solidified. It's strong. Proverbs talks about the walls in your life being strong. If you have strong walls in your life, you're spiritually safe and protected to where you're supposed to be. If the walls of your life are crumbling, it's so easy to allow bad choices, bad decisions into your life, and you're not seeking the Lord. Your walls have crumbled. So the walls being rebuilt are very symbolic. So, verse 11 of Nehemiah chapter 2. So I came to Jerusalem, was there three days. 
Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well to the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up to the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Nehemiah, to understand what his vision was, he went out by himself, just rode around and looked around. Now, what's your vision? If you're saying, I don't know, I appreciate your honesty. How about this? Where you geographically live. Let's say you live in Deschler, Lipsick, Ottawa, Miller City. I could go to Walsion. I could go down all the different examples here. How about you drive through your town a little bit? How about you drive through your town and just start praying over those streets and praying over those people? You know, when the Lord led us to kind of go over to Belmore for a while and start up the VBS, etc., my wife and I would purposely drive through Belmore every now and then just kind of pray for the town. What would happen is you went into the bank, you'd pray for those bank tellers and those people as you went to the cashier, you'd pray for that cashier. What would happen if you, as you drove through the town, instead of getting frustrated, everything falling apart, you just stopped and said, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Note, what do you want me to do with this? See, here's the problem. A lot of times I've noticed when people have a heart for a town or a city or a community, Lord, send someone to this community. Lord, send someone to get involved here and light the fire. How about you? You. You drive through your town, just like Nehemiah. You pray over those streets. You pray over those people. How about the Lord raise you up? Now, let's say you don't live in town. You're thinking, finally... I'm in the country. I can ignore that point. You live close to a town. Okay, what's this not even say of the town? What about work? What about as you walked into work, as you walked by those cars that were parked there, you pray for those people. You pray for everybody you run into. You pray for those people in their desks or on the line or something like that. And you say, Lord, how can I, how can I impact this place of work? Not, Lord, send a believer. Send me. What about your house? What would happen if you just walk through your house, your rooms, and just pray for your kids and your family? Sometimes when our boys are sleeping, we'll go in and just pray for them into their bedrooms when no one's around. And Lord, just pray for this house to be a house for you. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in the book of Proverbs, about how the house is filled with righteousness and wisdom and knowledge. Lord, fill this house. Wives, you're not happy with your husbands? What happens if you go pray over their items, their things? Husband's not happy with their wives. Go pray over their stuff. Lord, just bless my wife. Bless my husband. Bless my kids. Walk through it. We do that out here at church. Sometimes when I'm out here by myself, I'll walk through the rooms, pray for you guys that are teaching on Sunday, to pray for the people sitting. And you may think this is strange, but if I'm going to do a counseling appointment, and I know it's going to be tough, I'll go over to those chairs in my office and say, Lord, whoever sits in this chair, open their heart to you. This is what Nehemiah did. See, we've reached a point where we have a burden for the lost. So, Lord, send somebody to reach them. Boy, shame on us. Send me. Send me to my town, to my community. Send me to my workplace. Send me to my house. Lord, I want to be like Nehemiah. And then when you get the vision, come back. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the distress we are in? 
How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Take the vision, verse 17. Share the vision, verse 17. Get people with you. Come and let us. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of my king's words that they had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build, then set their hands to this good work. Share the vision. Get the body of Christ together. Now go complete that vision. So whatever town you're in, you have a heart for it, this is what I want you to do. Over the next week or two, I want you to do exactly what Nehemiah did. Pray for your town. If the weather's good, walk through your town. Drive through your town. Lord, how can we reach this place? And then when you have a heart for it, and you have a vision for it, I want you to come back to us and say, this is the heart I have for this town, this community, this workplace, this home. And then you know what we're going to do? We're going to say, hey, guess what? In a couple weeks, anybody that lives in Dashler or Lipstick, whatever, this person's got a heart of vision for it. You're going to meet after church after the 10 o'clock, and we're just going to get together and start praying for that town. And what is the Lord going to do in that town? Let's move. This is what exactly what Nehemiah did. Let's rise up together. And then you know what we're going to do as a church? We're going to equip you to do that. You need Bibles, we'll get you Bibles. You need manpower, we'll get you manpower. You need prayer, we'll get you prayer. You need support, we'll support you. This is the way the system is supposed to work. This is how the church moves. This is how the church works. This is what they did in Acts. This is what they tell us to do in Ephesians. we got to do it. Why don't we? We're choked out by the cares of the world. Oh, that's a great idea. But boy, it's busy right now. A lot going on at work. A lot going on with the kids. You know, if you guys do something in maybe June, let me know, because things slow down a little bit. No. Here I am. Send me. You know what's going to happen as soon as you want to do this? Verse 19. When Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us, despised us, and said, what is this thing that you are doing when you rebel against the king? You're going to run into so much opposition. You're going to run into opposition at work at home, in your community. You're going to run into opposition all around. Now, are you going to faint? Are you going to falter? Or are you going to stand up? It goes back to our crisis of faith example. See, the enemy knows for some of us, the best way to defeat us is just put a tiny little wall in front of you. Oh, man. And we just give up. We just quit. What does Nehemiah do? Verse 20. I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah basically says, I know the vision the Lord has given me. Get out of the way. What would happen if we would do that? And I mean this sincerely. Take a week or two. Go through your community. Go through your workplace. Go through your home. Do what Nehemiah did. Walk through it. Pray through it. Do this day after day, night after night. Maybe when you're coming home from work, you purposely go a little bit different route. You go through that subdivision and you just start praying for houses. Maybe you go by that school and you start praying for those kids in that school. You go by for those places of employment and you pray for them. And then the Lord over the next couple of weeks says, this is what we want to do. You come to us and you say, I got something I think the Lord wants to do. So we just say, hey... This town people, Ottawa, Desert, Lipstick, Melinda, Miller City, whatever it is, Wauseon, this person here is something they kind of want to share. Meet after church, see what the Lord has in store. Here I am, send me. Then once you guys figure out what the Lord has in store, let's equip you to go do whatever you want to do. You know what this means? It means getting your hands dirty. 
It means giving up your time. It means stopping and saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. Because I realize that's going to make a bigger impact than anything I could ever imagine. It always fascinates me how many times I hear believers say, you know what? I always had a heart to do something there. But I never did. Why? Oh, there's always reasons. They're always waiting for that other person to be raised up. Well, maybe you're the support staff on this one. Maybe you don't have the vision. Maybe you'll come back in a couple weeks and say, James, I don't have the vision. I just got the heart. Let's get you together. Let's hook you up. Let's start doing stuff. This is what we're supposed to do. This is how the church is supposed to work. And then we equip you to do that. So as we continue our study here through Romans, for the next week or two, commit this to prayer. I can't stress that enough. Commit this to prayer. And and if you feel led, go back and listen to that message on November 2nd and that one on March 16th, especially the March 16th one, where we really lay out the vision of how church is supposed to be. It's the body of Christ coming together to help the body of Christ. Let's do it the way we're supposed to do it. Let's get back to the basics. And as we get back to the basics, the Lord will give us that vision and that heart for it. Let's not just want to see our house, our workplace, our community changed. And let's just not sit there and twiddle our thumbs until it happens. Let's get out there and through the Spirit of the Lord and through the power of God, do something about it. Let's make that our motive here. Marvin, come forward for the final song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us a heart, a heart like Jesus.